I am going to brand Barry Windham after I defeat him. I am going to brand Abdullah the Butcher, brand Carlos Cologne, and I am going to brand the world of professional wrestling. Okay, first of all, I'd like to say thank you to all of our followers. I don't know how many of you know this or not, but we've got an Instagram page going. It's been pretty active lately. So if you want to reach us and you want to send us a DM or ask us a question or talk about an episode, we're happy to engage you there. Our Instagram account is Six Man Podcast. You can DM us anything at any time and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. With that said, this week, I want to start off by going back to last week and talking about the theme songs. We did a whole list of theme songs, and somebody sent me a private message and said, hey, you forgot one of the greatest theme songs ever. And I was thinking about, what the fuck? What are you talking about? Greatest theme songs ever. And I guess in a certain kind of genre, this might be considered great, but somebody said they thought the Harlem Heat theme song was the greatest hip-hop wrestling theme song ever. What do you think, Mike? You like it? Yeah, it was kind of cool. I don't know if it was the greatest ever. Yeah, I don't know if it was that great either. I thought it was okay. Like it was, it was nice. Like it suited them well when they came out. And then Booker used it for a long time. It had a catchy beat, but it didn't hit me as one of the greatest ever. But and especially in terms of hip hop, there's been lots of songs that have been used as hip hop themes. So I'm not sure if I'm in agreement with that. But it it was definitely good. It wasn't bad. Any come to mind after we did this for a week now? Anything stand out as something you've missed as far as songs mm-hmm. no but i mean for the, for right now for hip-hop the acclaimed entrance is pretty good oh he's fucking excellent he's yeah, so he fucking good <laughs> i love him yeah, those guys are really good <laughs> yeah i don't, i love like he's a little bit like corny and nerdy and trying to be cool and so like it's it's kind of in the middle there you know what i mean but i really like the cadence of his style it's way, oh, yeah. way fucking cooler than John Cena rapping. No, no offense to anybody who loves Cena. John Cena said that. Did you hear that? Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, he even said that. Yeah, somebody asked him about uh, if, if they knew about him, and he said that. Mm-hmm. He said, yeah, I know about him. He's like, do you think he'll ever be as good as you? He said, he's already better than me. I'm glad he said that because the truth. He's pretty, he's pretty humble. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Oh, wow. He, he's not lying either because he's much, much better at he is way much better. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Oh, wow, that's good. Okay, so I think those stand out. Anything else, Mike, stand out about the themes other than the acclaim? No, not really. Okay, so this week we're talking about probably one of the most legendary wrestlers ever. And to just talk about him and our thoughts on him would kind of marginalize his career so i'm going to go through a little bit of a career perspective and then we're going to talk about how we thought about those things the first thing we're going to talk about about this week's hero is terry funk his debut match mike was with one of your heroes sputnik monroe that really surprised me and what surprised me even more it was in 1965 wow yeah well yeah i I was i was wondering when he started i wasn't sure if it was the early 70s or the late 60s. It's crazy, right? It's unbelievable. He's been wrestling for 10 years longer than we've been alive. Fucking nuts. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so his initial match was with Sputnik Monroe. It's a great way to start. And then from there, his career really takes off in all Japan in the 1970s 
tagging with his brother after their father had already made like an inroads for them. To be honest, I don't know much about Dory Funk Sr. Do you know much about him, Mike? Not at all. Yeah, I, I wonder how good he was. I you mean, was he a wrestler? Yeah, he was a wrestler. Oh, yeah, I don't know anything about him. Oh, wow. Okay, so Dory Funk Jr. Uh, at some point, I'm going to try and search out a Dory Funk Sr. match. We'll see how it was. But Jr. and Terry Funk were a legendary tag team, and they were so fucking over in the 1970s in Japan as foreigners. Japanese people cheered for them, which is unfucking heard of at the time. And then from there, he makes a transition into singles. And still to this day, he is one of the most beloved foreign people in Japan. And so his impression in this country is fucking enormous. What do you think of his early stuff from all Japan? I think the 70s were his, were his best, you know, the 70s and then probably the 80s after that. You know, we the stuff, the stuff he did here, the stuff he did in Japan was excellent. Yeah, excellent. Agreed. Brother work, top of the game. Very, very good. Very, very good. Like for my American like legend list, like he's high up there, man. He's, you know, he's, mm. I could say top five up, but you know, he's, he's in my top 10, I'm sure. Yeah. Like we often talk about those ridiculous top 10 lists, but if anybody puts Terry Funk in their top 10 list, that's not something to be laughed at, right? He's well-deserved. Yeah. That, that's hard, hard to argue against. Yeah. Okay. Then from there, he makes a big splash in NWA in the early eighties. And then from there, he goes to the WWF and I'm, I'm not trying to like, uh, pass over his time in the NWA because I want to mention that in the late 80s, he goes back to the NWA, which becomes WCW. So it's like NWA, WWF, back to NWA. All of the runs here are very strong, but his presence in NWA in the early 80s and late 80s, he's at the very, very top of the card. In the WWF, he's not at the top, but he's at like the upper middle card, let's say. But this is... In 1985 or 86, his debut in WWF was the first time where I was truly ever afraid of a wrestler. So I remember watching, I must have been like 10 or 11 years old, and it's his debut WWF match, and he's working some job guy. And Mel Phillips is a guy at ringside who collects the attire, and they did a fucking fantastic angle where... Mel Phillips is collecting Terry Funk's gear and because he can't hold everything, he puts Terry Funk's cowboy hat on his head. Terry Funk then proceeds to beat the shit out of him and he beat the shit out of him, not like a wrestler beating up a wrestler, but like a real street fight. I remember it. I was petrified. I was like, holy shit. And then just for this episode, I was like, okay, I got to go back and watch it. Maybe I was just young. And I watched it again, and he really fucking beat the shit out of him. It looked so fucking fantastic. It was fucking great. I've never seen anything like that then. I haven't seen anything like it since. I thought it was outstanding. That was my introduction to Terry Funk. It was a great, great, great angle. And then from there, he gets to the top, fights Hogan, typical formula, and he's like washed away and then back to the NWA. What did you th think about his WWF run? Was that the first time you kind of were aware of him or did you realize? No, I knew him from the NWA because I, I, I watched, you know, I was a bigger NWA fan as a kid than I was WWF. And so that NWA stuff, he was on top or at the very top or what was his position there? Um, when I saw him, I, I don't know if Flair was at the top. I see. But yeah, but I saw, I saw him and then you'd see him in the mags and stuff. And then uh, my, my favorite thing with Funk. Right. I, I loved all of it, but was the angle with Flair. It was after mm. the Flair and Steamboat series when F Flair won the belt back. Right. 
he was a legit contender. Commentary for the match, and then he ended up putting him to the pile driver. Yeah, the pile driver the table afterwards. Fantastic stuff. The stuff with him and Flair was great. Yeah, very good, very, very, very good. And then from there, he takes a little bit of a hiatus, only to come back to ECW after doing bomb matches for Onita. Like, what kind of fucking career is this? It's incredible. Then ECW puts him on top, and he gives a promotion credibility, takes the championship at Barely Legal, and then after a couple of years. He does a retirement show, and the retirement show is in his hometown. He's probably in his 50s at this time. We think we're never going to see him again. The retirement show is a main event match against Bret Hart, and just a little bit of private information for you there. When I left to come to Japan, Mike had on his basement wall the poster for that show. I'm not sure how he got it, but he wrapped it up really nicely and he gave it to me and I still have that poster. It's hanging in my room here still today. Oh yeah. yeah. And then, uh, so he works Bret Hart and then out of nowhere, he fucking comes back to the WWF as Chainsaw Charlie in the <laughs> light nineties. And everybody knows who he is. Why <laughs> they fucking put him in Chainsaw Charlie and he works a program with Mick Foley. They hit each other pretty hard. I remember there was like, some missed spots and there was a little bit of tension between the two of them and then i came to japan so i hadn't seen anything after that but apparently you know better than me he worked roh and mlw stuff how was that later stuff yeah yeah it was, it was later stuff it was, you nah, know, it was later stuff huh? yeah yeah i see I yeah see. but i mean pretty pretty much i mean discounting that because i didn't see that much of that Mm-hmm. Most, you know, I really liked him in every aspect. He was cool in WWE too. The Chainsaw Charlie show was a little bit weird, but I liked him with Cactus. Yeah, you know what? Cactus kept him relevant, right? Even though he was slowing yeah. down, like the that style of match, that garbage wrestling, it made it look like it was believable. And so, like, he still had a good part in the show. He was prominent in the card. You could tell, like, everybody respected him. And even though athletically he was not, he was a shell of his former self. His matches were still entertaining. I, I don't know why they packaged him. The ECW stuff was cool too. Yeah, the ECW stuff was really good at first, right? Like I. I was like, you know, this guy's 50 years old. Why are you putting the title on him? But then I realized the reason why they're doing it is it's going to put ECW on the international map because Japanese magazines reported it like a big deal. And ECW got huge coverage here. It led to ECW broadcasts being carried in Japan. And then uh, they eventually did shows here in Korakuen. That's all because of Terry Funk. And so in terms of a promotional movie, it was a very smart move, even though he was past his prime. And then uh, once he held the title for a little bit, he just passed it on and moved on. And I thought it was great. Really, really great. Excellent stuff. Yeah. For a smaller company to just have like on your list of, you know, former title holders, they have Terry Funk on their list. Yeah. Great move. Yeah, he's a former ECW champion. That's pretty awesome for ecw to be able to say that that terry funk was a former champion like yeah. AEW giving the title to jericho was this guy thing kind of in the same vein like he got some you know he was he was a name he was far from the best worker in the company so so that's why he got the belt you know you know there's i see god there's you know, probably 15 other guys that are better than him. sure right and I, but i think you do that to get the publicity to get the exposure to get the news awareness and I, it's a smart move yeah, yeah very smart move he had a nice run. Mm. yeah yeah he had a nice run 
he decided after he lost the belt to get into shape because he looked like meatloaf the whole time he had it. Right. So, unfortunately for Terry Funk, in, after Barely Legal's run, he couldn't get it. He was just too old to get into shape, unlike Jericho, right? Like, he just yeah. he was just over by that time. I think he was his 50s already, right? Because he debuted in 65. He's on top in ECW maybe by, like, the late 90s. That's almost 50 years. Fucking, it's incredible. Incredible. Okay, so... Uh, as a career perspective, we both agree he's one of the greatest workers ever. If you tried to put together a top 10 best Terry Funk matches list, it would take a lot of research because there are oh, famous yeah. matches with him and Lawler, the empty arena. There's uh, maybe you could even consider a lot of his tag matches in all Japan, his work with Flair. Uh, I don't say anything from the 80s in the WWF is like really kind of anything that qualifies him as being a great talent but the NWA stuff the ECW stuff the All Japan stuff all of it was excellent fantastic and Barry Windham too let's not discount Barry Windham right and so I was just about to say uh, you know on the flip side of this match we've got Barry Windham on the other hand Barry Windham is the son of Black Jack Mulligan and Black Jack Mulligan and Terry uh, Funk work together very very closely and so you could tell there's a certain amount of trust in the ring between these two and Barry Windham is no fucking slouch he worked everywhere. He worked great in tag work. He worked great in singles work. Uh, for a guy his size, his agility was fucking outstanding. And his ability to read the crowd and bump was maybe at that time, like unprecedented for a guy that size, I think. Yeah. Yeah. The way he fell out of the ring during the match, the one spot was pretty insane. Awesome. Awesome. There's a lot of things in this match that were actually quite good. We'll get into the match in detail. But like, you know, when I think about Barry Windham, he, unfortunately, he had some like shitty gimmicks, right? He had like the yellow dog and the Widowmaker and all that kind of like bullshit stuff. But when he was just Barry Windham and he was part of the Windham and Rotunda tag team in his early stuff in the WWE, he was very young, very agile, very aggressive. That was okay. But I thought he was better when he did singles in the NWA or maybe WCW at that time. I thought he was great at that time. That was his peak for me yeah i loved him with the horsemen right right that's exactly the time right you think about you know the horsemen are great they had all the belts but like at that point or mm -hmm. at least around that point a lot of people thought barry Windham was the best worker in the country people you know the wrestlers had had such a respect for him that like a lot of people thought that he should be the guy you know you know well he's not going to draw the money that a flair is or a dusty or somebody like that but yeah you know i think his look kind of limited him right like and you didn't have like a marketable campaign behind him they didn't they could have done something maybe but they didn't like he's he's got everything right blonde hair he's got a he's handsome he's tall he's this every almost everything's there unlike bobby eaton we talked about last time even though bobby eaton's got the blonde hair he doesn't he just doesn't have that aura barry windham had it and I'm just not sure why they didn't put money behind him. I'm not sure what happened there. Not in WWE, though, because he didn't have the WWE look. Yeah, yeah, he didn't have the WWE look. Right? You know, I think it's the mic work, maybe. Uh, yeah, come to think about it, I don't remember him ever giving an interview that kind of hit me in any kind of way. And he didn't. He never really had to say anything because, mm -hmm. you know, first of all, Flair, yeah. you know, the, the best ever. Anderson, one of the best ever, you know. And then J.J. Dill, he didn't have to speak. Tully could talk. Right. He's like the big enforcer just standing behind them, right? That's all yeah. it is. Yeah, I see. Okay, yeah. So the two guys in this week's match are outstanding. You know, I'd never seen these guys work each other before. So I was looking forward to this match. But more importantly, this match is in Puerto Rico, in WWC. And I was always curious about Puerto Rico and matches in Puerto Rico. And I hate to sound stereotypical, 
but I always thought Puerto Rican matches were in open air arenas and like, you know, there was a riotous crowd and people are throwing rocks in the ring and the security is very lax. And so it took me a little bit aback when I saw the condition of this. It was just like a 1970s gym in North America, you know, <laughs> like a, a school gymnasium, but it was, it was packed. It was fucking packed. When you look up closely, really closely, you notice the security guards are not to be fucked with. They're carrying batons. Yeah, it like military. Yeah, it was military. <laughs> yeah, like that's not a staff shirt. <laughs> right. It's not like a dude with a staff shirt, you know? It's a muscle. That dude's like trained to kill. And then the first two rows is only, I don't know if you noticed, it was like only old ladies. And then behind yeah. them, there's like a steel bar preventing anybody from coming down on the ground. And if you do, it's all the military. So that was really, really peculiar. But I guess, you know, my stereotypical image wasn't really that far from the truth. Like, it's, it's probably that dangerous. I, I, I love the crowd involvement. I love the crowd reaction. I loved everything about WWC. This made me want to watch WWC matches more. I'm very curious about how they would have reacted if they were to like one of the guys was Puerto Rican or if, you know, one of the guys was a hometown favorite because both of these guys are like away guys. Like, you know, they're both fighting in a foreign country as foreign stars. But the crowd and the atmosphere, the aura was really cool. I really loved it. I loved, well, we always talk about the commentary. I love the Spanish commentary. The enthusiasm they have for the match is great. I could only pick up a couple of words like cabeza or capital sports. <laughs> right? They just yeah. keep saying that over and over again. But uh, I thought they did a good job without knowing much Spanish. I don't think my, I think my Spanish is pretty terrible. Yours is better than mine. But did you pick up much of what they were saying or no? No. No, right. But the enthusiasm was great, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That guy who did the commentary, I recognized him, but I couldn't put my finger as to where I recognized him from. I wondered if he was a, a Jose Gonzalez or if he was a wrestler that we knew. I know he's somebody. I just couldn't put my finger on it. Could you put your finger on who he was? No, I, I did not know. I see. Okay, okay. All right. So then that's out of the way. The referee, I love this referee, not because he's particularly good, but he didn't make himself a part of the match when the guys go on the outside. We don't really see him come and try to break it up. He tries to administer the count. The count's a little bit slow, but he he does what he's supposed to do. And I think this is a good job of the ref staying out of the way of the action, letting the action happen. Whenever the action's on the outside, one of the guys comes in quickly because the ref is counting in the ring. The, he doesn't like break the rules for the sake of the match. I thought he did a good job. Thoughts on this ref? Yeah, he's fine. Yeah, nothing nothing to write home about, but nothing wrong with him. Yeah. Okay, and then uh, the match itself. Okay, so before we get started, Mike, I just said overall, what do you think about the match? (laughs) So I put it into perspective of like, this is 85, 1985. And if I think about what's going on in 85, and I think about the storytelling here and the little things they do, I think for 1985, this is a very good match for 1985. By today's standards, sure, no, absolutely not. But by 85 standards, this is a much better match than, uh, let's say, JYD and whoever the WDF's got going on in the ring. And it's much better than Hogan squashing guys, I thought. I like the intricate storytelling between these two, you know, the way the heel and the face played against each other. I liked a lot of aspects of this. So for me, it was better than, uh, but 
it wasn't outstanding. I liked it more than the the Jericho Ultimate <laughs> Dragon match, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. It's better than that match. They dicked around for about five minutes before they even touched each other. So, right. so it's like I'm losing my patience, and then they're out, outside the ring every three seconds. Mm-hmm. I, I like how Terry Sunk, uh, Terry Funk sells. Right. I think he's got a right. lot of cool ways to do it, but I think he went to it a little bit too often, and, and, it, and it makes it so unbelievable when like the lightest thing makes you like you know go into like Warner Brothers goofy mode. So you know what? I thought that they purposely did that because both of the guys are American guys, and they want the crowd to be vested in somebody one way or the other. So I think that's why they spend a little bit of extra time in the beginning to try and tell the story of like Terry Funk being bad and Barry Windham being good. But I, I totally agreed with you. It was a little bit boring for people who know who's supposed to be the good guy, who's supposed to be the bad guy already, right? So uh, that early stuff was unnecessary. And even though they did go on the outside way too much, unlike Bam Bam and RVD, it wasn't just the whole match is on the outside and let's do the pinfall on the inside. They did a move on the outside. One guy went back in on the inside, tried to break the count, went back to the outside, did the move. Then they went back, but they did go to it way too often. Way too often. For all the old heads that get mad when someone kicks out of a pile, pile driver, we saw at least three of them on the concrete, right? Yeah, we saw four on the concrete. <laughs> four, okay, yeah, right. Right. And so, 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 people, so when people get mad that someone kicks out of a pile driver, this was in 1985 or six. Yeah. So. And four on the concrete with no padding on the ground. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That was kind of wild. Okay, so let's go through a couple of spots that I, well, I want to talk about. One thing that I loved in the very, very beginning, you know, they're feeling each other out. And finally, the the match starts. Okay, the match starts. And Funk pushes Wyndham off the ropes. And Wyndham does a drop down, but he does it face up. I don't ever remember seeing a face up drop down. Had you ever seen that before? Since then, possibly, yeah. yeah. Is it because not, not, not at that point, probably. Right. And so, like, what happens is like Terry Funk's expecting Barry Windham to be standing in front of him. And instead of Barry Windham turning his back to him and dropping down, when he does like the, like a, basically a bump and he's like facing up. Terry Funk gets thrown off his running rhythm and then he gets caught up in the rope and he gets tangled over in the the top rope and he gets frustrated. I thought even though that was cartoonish, it was really believable the way they played that off. I thought that was very subtle, very, very nice. It was super cool. I'm sure it's been done since then, but at that time, I don't remember ever seeing it. And I thought Barry Windham did a very good job dropping down the very last second. Very nice. Great. And then from there, Funk takes a powder and he does something I've never, ever seen in a wrestling match ever. I doubt it's been done since. He picks up one of the wooden chairs, hurls it into the ring, and Barry Windham fucking catches the chair one-handed. <laughs> yeah, that was cool, man. That was some fun shit. Right, that was fucking awesome. So you expect the chairs to go fly, uh, like flying around, people to panic, and the re- referee to move back, and uh, Windham to like sell it. He just fucking catches it in one hand, puts it down. That was awesome, awesome. Okay, then from there, you've got like this weird setup with like all these old grandmothers sitting outside the ring. And I guess in Puerto Rico, it's just a guess. It's probably to protect them from the riled up crowd because every person in the first two rows was just an old lady or an old couple. They may have been like sponsors or like VIP people. And so when Funk gets into it with the people in the crowd, at one point he sits down on an old lady's lap. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> and so like yeah. that was kind of yeah that was cool that was kind of funny but you get this like tinge of like anything could go down at any minute because these military police guys are like surrounding the ring and when funk is approaching them and swinging and whatever these fuckers are not flinching for a second <laughs> they're dead fucking serious okay and then we get back into the ring a lot of back and forth back and forth and then Something that I thought was really, 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 really cool is Terry Funk does the pile driver, the first pile driver on the outside. But I clearly remember the pile driver being a band match, uh, band move in Lucha. And so I thought, isn't WWC Lucha was like the first thought I had in my mind. But then well, I thought about Lucha Libre, but it's, I mean, it's not like they're in Mexico. That's right. Right. So that, that's exactly the thought process I had. I was like, in Spanish, Lucha is just wrestling. And so I think they just use the word Lucha, but they don't follow Lucha Libre's like rules. So that's why the pile driver was okay. Cause they never got disqualified. He even does one in the ring. Wyndham does one in the ring. So it's not an illegal move. And it wasn't illegal throughout all of the States. Oh, I see. I see. Get through all the territories, you know. So, like Puerto Rico is just another, you know, extension of the U.S. And I, it's just it wasn't illegal everywhere. And I'm sure the restrictions on legality in Puerto Rico were probably in line with the U.S. View. I'm, well, I'm sure they probably. I'm sure actually they probably had uh, less restrictions than than the U.S. Right, 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 right. It's just because it's Spanish. It threw me off a little bit. I was expecting that to be like a disqualification. And so it's maybe me being a stereotypical person thinking all Spanish people do lucha, but like it just caught me off guard a little bit, right? And then uh, from there, so Terry Funk goes back in the ring, rolls back out, does a second pile driver. And what I liked about this was he set it up so that Wyndham will get his comeuppance and be able to do two pile drivers to him back. But actually, Wyndham ends up doing three, and we have a match here in 1985 with five fucking pile drivers. I've never seen a match with five pile drivers at that time. The pile driver is like the one spot finish move at this time. Very, yeah, yeah it was very unbelievable. But every time they do the pile driver, you can hear the Vuvuzelas going. The crowd's getting a little bit louder and louder. They're really buying into that move. And at one time, the Spanish commentator all of a sudden, wow, <laughs> he just <laughs> screams out, wow, with the, the pile driver. Like, he can't believe it's happening that much. It's the only English word he uses. Not only was it happening so much, I think that it was the only move used in the match for the first probably seven or eight minutes until Wyndham gives him a back suplex. That's correct. But before that, they did like five pile. Other than that, it was all bullshitting around. That's right. It was like small stuff, like a punch and then uh, something in, like he pushed him into the corner, rope work. There was nothing other than a headbutt. There was just the pile drivers. You're right. You're right. And then. Uh, and, and I like his cartoonish shit. And that spot you mentioned was really cool. But, and I, I I just thought that every cell was was like that. And I, I you know, I, that was the difference from Murdoch. You know, he brought, he had a couple of goofy ones with the shaky knees right. and this and that. But it's not every time. Right. And Murdoch did it 20 minutes into the match. Right? Yeah. Too much. Like right away, he's, he's like all wobbly like that after like one little thing. 
yeah, it was overkill. I agree. Like one one of the things that was cool was like he did the headbutts, right? He headbutts Windham a couple of times, and then after he starts headbutting him, he himself becomes like doozy, right? Like, like he's like yeah, losing his yeah, balance. Makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Agreed. But like he didn't have to make that happen like every single time, right? And so yeah. the the quarter post, like because uh, there's a I'm gonna jump a little bit ahead into the match. The Windham puts. Uh, Terry Funk into the corner and he smashes his head 10 times into the corner post. He does it on three of the four corner posts. And then Terry Funk, instead of like Ric Flair going into the middle of the ring and doing the face bump, he starts like shaking his head up and down in the middle of the air. The crowd is fucking loving it. They're buying every second of it. But then he falls over and through the ropes and to the outside and he's wobbly. It's way, way too much. Way too much. I like how Wyndham, uh, uh, when, when Wyndham was hitting his head into the turnbuckle, right. he had both hands on his in his hair. Right. It wasn't just the one hand, so he had both. It was it looked it looked pretty neat. Nobody really does that. They just do it with the one hand. Like it, there's less resistance, right? right? Like if you're just doing one hand, you could hold, you could prevent it a little bit more, right? You have some neck muscles, mm-hmm. but it's, but it, it looks better when when the guy's got you know the guy's got both his hands full of hair and he's ramming his head into the buckle. You're right, and there's another thing he does right after that is after he finally Terry Funk gets back in the ring, he does a snap mare, right? But when he does a snap mare, he drops down on his right knee and he picks his right hand like almost like he's doing a stunner, and he pulls. Funk's head down, and then with his left hand, he throws his body over. It's that little attention to detail in Wyndham's moves that are outstanding, right? That little shit, just so nice. I, I could see why people looked at him as as the best. Yeah, yeah, it's easy to see why. Easy to see why. And then when he from there, he misses the elbow, and as soon as Funk moves out of the way, that's when he starts contorting his body in the air to really sell it. So when he lands, it looks fucking devastating. You know, I, I thought that was also really, really great. And from there, we get a step over to hold. And this is Terry Funk's legendary finishing move. I don't know how many people in Puerto Rico know, like, this is where the finish is supposed to happen. But Wyndham rolls him up for a, a very quick two, you know, and the tension. This is where we start building towards the finish, right? We get a quick two there. We get a sunset flip for another two. And then from there, we get. Terry Funk goes out to the outside to bail and he does something very funny and it's kind of cool. He gets himself entangled with a chair and then tries to make his way back to the ring, but then he can't get into the ring because the chair is around his neck and it allows Wyndham to just wail on him a bunch in the ring. It's cartoony, but it's cool. I'd never seen that before. I really like that idea of the guys like panicking and trying to escape, but he's got something which prevents him from fully escaping and then the arrival can take advantage of it. I thought that was nice. What'd you think of that? Yeah, I got a chuckle out of it. I never saw that before in my life. Yeah, it was good. And then uh, the crowd is like really coming to life here. You know, we can see that the finish is about to happen. They go to the corner. Funk puts his feet on the second ropes, the very classical like bad guy finish. And he ties up Wyndham and amazingly like they lose their balance but what's really cool here is the ref starts pointing at Terry Funk like you're breaking the rules you're cheating you're blah 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 and the crowd starts like eating it up and they just go with Funk fucking up that spot and making it a part of the match that's like real professionalism I fucking loved it 
I don't ever remember that spot being fucked up and then them adjusting so well. It's great. And then from there, we get Wyndham doing the Lex Luger forearm and then one of the worst ever clotheslines. <laughs> one of the weakest, worst clotheslines. Oh, yeah. Oh, it was bad. And then we get a false finish as Funk gets his foot on the ropes and Wyndham doesn't see it. As Wyndham turns around thinking he was one, Funk rolls him up, gets a nice little roll up, holds the tights, gets the three count. In terms of storytelling, I love the finish. What do you think of the finish? Yeah, it's all right. So for that time, you know, we don't have many creative kind of back and forth finishes. It's usually like a guy does his finishing move and it's over or a disqualification or like a screw job finish. I, I liked it. I thought it was good. I liked the crowd. I liked everything. You know, I agree with you. It's a little bit better than Jericho and uh, Ultimo Dragon. It's not a fantastic match. I didn't mind it. I thought it was a five, six out of ten, something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You wouldn't go that high? Four to five region. Ah, uh, I see. I see. Yeah, I, I thought it was too much. I, I, he was like the greatest hit show. Like, he played every song. Ah. Uh, you know, mm. uh, with Funk, with the, sell, the selling was over over the top. I mean, they, did, they didn't do much in the first five or seven minutes even, really. Yeah, right. Sure. Yeah, there was just a maybe a, maybe a five, I, I guess. I see. I mean, talking about it, maybe like it a little bit more than I would have. Did you watch any of the post-match interview stuff? Yeah, that was pretty good. That was cool. really good. That was excellent. Funk was great. <laughs> the way he scares the shit out of the commentator was awesome. I think that added a little bit to it. And then he built up for the match with Martel. I don't know where that angle went. I'm not even sure why they had Martel in WWC. You know, I, I can't imagine the Puerto Rican fans would be that behind a French Canadian guy. I, 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 I don't know what the storyline was. But like, uh, so he builds up for his match with Martel. I don't know where that's going. But I like that. I like the I like the overall package. I like the overall everything. I'm not, as you know, I'm not happy with the camera angles. But for that time, sure, great, I, good. I, I'm not disappointed. I was glad to have seen the match. I was glad to have seen these two work together because it gives me a perspective on what it is they were capable of doing at this time and why Wyndham was so great. Actually, even though this wasn't a great match, I'm just not big on the the, uh, the brawling. Yeah, when I've seen it so much, it becomes boring. And uh, you know, if they're going to be outside. You- Throw, throw some, not even tables. I want to see some shit, man. I mean, light tubes and mm. barbed wire. If you're going outside the ring, do something. Right. I, You know, I wonder, I, I'd like to watch a WWC match again. I wonder, like, when there's a hometown favorite in the WWC, like, just how wild the atmosphere is and how crazy it gets. Because I've heard lots of fucking crazy stories about... Guys claiming like, you know, Puerto Rico is really dangerous. You shouldn't go there. Like, yeah. yeah. And so I imagine the crowd's fucking hot. At some point in the near future, let's do another WWC match. We'll find something with a, a hometown guy. Before it was militarized. Right. <laughs> right. You know, no security or light security. Let's get into uh, this week's This or That. This week's This or That is a little bit tricky. It's a good This or That for this week. This or That is Chainsaw Charlie 
or the Widowmaker? Uh, the, the Widowmaker. You know, uh, it was much better than the Stalker. He <laughs> still looked like, you know, the real Barry Windham at that point. It was just they sure. to use an asshole name for him. Yeah. But I, I would definitely take the Widowmaker over, uh, over Chainsaw Charlie. Okay, so I'm going the opposite direction, but the reason why I'm going the opposite direction is I can't ever remember seeing a guy work a match with pantyhose over his head as part of his gimmick, and his face was all squished together, and just seeing how ridiculous that idea was always made me laugh, and so just for the visual spectacle of it, I'm going with Chainsaw Charlie. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Six Man Podcast. You can tag in with a DM. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to write to us at sixmanpodcast at gmail.com. For now, it's time to tag out. What?